We're happy to make podcasts available for selected ed webinars for your listening pleasure. If you'd like to receive a CE certificate, you must watch the video recording. Recordings and quizzes can be found in the EdWebinar archives. Please visit home.edweb.net slash podcasts for more information. Hello, everybody. Welcome back. It's Friday. We're so excited that you're here. Get on in here. As you're joining, you know, we have to practice that reaction button. So let's see who's been with us every day this week. Give us, give us a thumbs up or a heart emoji if you've been with us for Emergent Bilingual Week every day this week. Welcome back. Those are all my cousins, everybody. All my family members. Good to see everybody. Thank you so much. Is there anybody joining today for the first time? You've had a really busy week and you meant to come on, but today is your first opportunity to join with Ed Webb and Lexia for Emergent Bilingual Week. We welcome you. Thank you so much. So we have this poll question for you today. And it is, in your experience, what is the biggest challenge Emergent Bilingual students face compared to their monolingual peers, okay? So in your experience, what is the biggest challenge emergent bilingual students face compared to their monolingual peers? Mm. And if you're on your screen for Zoom, the chat poll just pops up on the screen. So feel free to respond to that poll. There are several options and you just, Pick whichever option. You only get one choice. So make it a good one. In your experience, what is the biggest challenge emergent bilingual students face compared to their monolingual peers? What do you think? And again, good morning to all of you that are joining. Yes, feel free to put your response in the chat as well. We love the engagement. All right, so here are the results of our poll. 64% of you said all of the above, and that would be in order, academic language understanding, that was 15% as well, reading comprehension, and 12% of you all made that choice, as well as language acquisition, which was 4% of the total population. And then there are 5% of you that said other, and so I've seen many of you responding in the chat. So please do that. If you had an, a response of other and you think it's something else that would be the biggest challenge the emergent bilingual students face compared to their monolingual peers, we'd love to see your commentary in the chat. So thank all of you for responding to our poll this morning. And with that, I will say welcome back to the finale, I'm say, to the finale of Emergent Bilingual Week. I have been your host and event moderator, affectionately known as Cousin Cassandra Wheeler. I serve as the Director of Letter State Success with Alexia. We have been thrilled all week that so many of you are joining us for our fourth annual week-long education event devoted to celebrating our bilingual and multilingual students. 
And we've been learning from some of the most respected minds in the national education community and celebrating the brilliant, detailed and dedicated work of educators and teachers who are implementing language and literacy instruction in classrooms all across the country. By now, you know, I've been here every day kind of kicking things off and getting us ready for our star studded group of presenters. So if you recall, and I want to see some thumbs up on day one, we kicked off Emergent Bilingual Week with Dr. Elsa Cardenas Hagen and researchers Dr. Gigi Luck and Dr. Young Soo Kim for a brilliant discussion on bilingualism and the brain. And then as we moved along, by Wednesday, we had our star-studded presenter, and we heard this incredible keynote from our prima, Denise Soler-Cox, on what it means to belong. Look at all those hearts. It was such a transformative session on Wednesday. And we moved along, and now we're here to Friday, the finale. Today, we're going to wrap up the week with What's unique about teaching reading to multilingual learners? Mm -hmm. I know it. you can't wait to hear about this discussion, right? Yeah, me too. If you have been clued in with us all week, and again, where are the thumbs up? Where are the family members that have been with it, here with us all week in the hearts? All right. So as we get ready for today, our panel leader, our discussion leader really needs no introduction because you've had a chance to witness his brilliance all week. So today, it is my pleasure to introduce our discussion leader, Jose Viana, who is the Senior Education Advisor to Lexia, as well as the former Assistant Deputy Secretary and Director of the Office of English Language Acquisition at the United States Department of Education. I said a mouthful, and he brings it. Let me just tell you that. Jose's career began in Miami, Florida, where he taught English to speakers of other languages. During his time in the classroom, Dr. Viana strategically incorporated technology through blended learning in order for emergent bilingual students to fully participate and thus accelerate their proficiency in English and ability to meet academic goals. In his role at OELA, he was responsible for the overall leadership, management, and direction of education for English language learners nationwide. And he oversaw the development of resources that guide education practice and policy to meet the needs of our country's emergent bilingual students. Talk about someone that is dedicated to this work. We are so thankful that he's here. It is my pleasure to pass the baton and the mic to Dr. Viana to get us started. Thank you so much, Jose. Thank you, Cassandra. Do you know when I'm around you, my cheeks end up hurting because you push my smile to its limits. It like extends a couple of inches higher than normal. It, it's like a facelift or something. <laughs> and thank you, Cassandra, for guiding us through this incredible and impactful journey this week. You've been our fearless leader, always grounding us on our why, which is success for our emergent bilingual students who mean the world to all of us who are here. And I like to ask those of you who have joined us through this journey of Emergent Bilingual Week, and even if you just showed us joined us today, please show some love to our prima, our cousin, Cassandra. Are you feeling it, Cassandra? Because I, I am. That is, That's a lot of love. <laughs> I'm getting them all on my cheeks. My face is just getting covered with love, heart, and hearts and kisses. Thank you. That's very kind, Jose. Thank you, everyone. Thank you, family. Thank you. Thank you, Cassandra. Now, speaking about the week, 
We have been together for five days now discussing how to better support the literacy and language needs of our emergent bilingual students. And I always like to remind our education leaders that it's imperative for schools, districts, and educators to remember multilingual learners are not monoliths, right? Each student has a distinctive educational journey. From newcomers needing safe environments to overcome their speaking shyness, to experienced multilinguals who need us to acknowledge their abilities, their rich life experiences, and their potential. Each emergent bilingual student can experience literacy success through personalized instruction at all levels. Well, today I'm honored to facilitate a discussion with some of my favorite education leaders and influencers as we fo focus on exactly that, what's unique about teaching reading to our exceptional multilingual learners. And I use the word exceptional because it's a synonym to the word unique. So unique slash exceptional instruction for a unique slash exceptional community of learners. And speaking about exceptional, let me introduce you to our panelists, mis amigos y, y mis amigas. Um, Beth Skelton has over 30 years of experience as a language educator and holds a master's degree in multicultural teacher education. She has worked with early childhood, elementary, middle, high school, and adult language learners in rural, urban, suburban, and international school settings. She is the co-author of Long-Term Success for Experienced Multilinguals, a best-selling book published by Cor uh, Corwin, and uh, also the author of Putting It Together, Materials for Teachers uh, for Teaching Adult English Learners Using Story-Based Curriculum. She is an active board member of Colorado TESOL, Beth currently provides professional development, coaching, and consulting with schools around the world focused on providing equitable education for multilingual learners. Tan Nguyen. Tan Nguyen is a secondary school teacher specializing in English language acquisition. He is also an author. He's a, a podcaster, a consultant. He has taught students from fifth grade to 10th grade in domestic, public, private, and charter but the bulk of his experience has been in international schools. Tan is trained in sheltered instruction, WIDA, culturally responsive instruction, international baccalaureate middle school years programming, and the collaborative uh, instructional cycle. Tan shares his application of research-based strategies on his blog, podcast, and online courses with the hopes of celebrating teachers who answer the calling to serve multilingual learners. Again, he's the co-author um, with Beth uh, uh, of the book that I, I, I need to mention again, Long-Term uh, Success for Emergent Bilinguals. It's, it's a must read for those of you who are working with these brilliant and experienced learners that are still struggling to reclassify. And last but definitely not least, Brianna Guzman. She's a senior language product specialist. She holds a Bachelor of Arts degree in elementary education and Spanish, a Master of Science degree in TESOL, and an advanced professional teaching certificate in grades one through six, ESOL, and pre-K through 12. Her personal experience includes teaching Spanish, third grade, first grade, and ESOL, as well as coaching classroom teachers, organizing professional development, and managing ELL programs. She is dedicated to education and advocacy for emergent bilinguals. As a dual language learner herself, Brianna helped to develop a new product 
to support the English language development of emergent bilinguals. I have the pleasure of working with Bree here at Lexi Weekly, always encouraging each other to find multiple ways of addressing the needs of our emergent bilinguals and making sure they have the support they need to find their own voice. So as you can probably tell, to me, these panelists are more than just experts and influencers, they're fellow advocates and friends. And I get to share them with all of you today. So let's dive in. My dear panelists, let's begin by understanding your views on asset-based instruction for emergent bilinguals and multilingual learners. Um, what does this mean for you personally and, and in your professional experience? Tom, let's, let's start with you. Well, my personal experience um, is currently working with sixth, eighth, tenth graders. And I'm thinking about when we work, when we think about integrating instructional strategies at the classroom level. Let me just give you an example. Right? I was thinking about um, my students were doing, we're uh, so, uh, re reading about social media right now as part of our unit. And before I started reading social media, I just had them tell me about what are some things that you love about social media? What are some of the things you really dislike about social media? And they had a conversation. They were like, oh, I like this. I, I really dislike what I'm like stuck in the bed and I just can't like let it go. And like, I really love it when like, I feel lonely and I can just connect with my friends. And we're doing this because they already have experience with the topic. So before I go and share with them statistics and the research behind it, and we read articles and we watch videos, I'm priming it for them. So they already have an access into that. And another thing is when we're working with older multilinguals or experienced multilinguals, as students are reading now the article, they're not just passively reading it. They're annotating. And my students in particular, they're annotating, one student in particular, she was annotating in Korean. And then I said, perfect. I have no idea what you're writing in your, uh, your annotation. Perfect. Can you, can you translate that for me and just put it as a comment under your annotation? And she did. And as I was reading her annotations, I was like, yeah, she really gets this. And as I looked through her text, I told all my students that as you're reading a word and you don't know it, can you please Google translate it and then put it, copy that word into the text so that you can have it forever. And I was reading just a few seconds ago, she was, she had the word display in Korean. And I was like, yes. Right. And this is what it means to think about what, like the, the assets of students. I am always forever indebted to Wida and Dr. Margot Gottlieb for changing my life with two words. I can do, right? I always describe my students as what they cannot do. But once I heard that phrase of can do, si se puede, life changed and this my instruction changed because I saw students in the way that what they can do instead of what they cannot yet do. So. That's just a very quick peek into my classroom this week. Thank you, Todd. Um, Beth, let, let's go to you. What, what does it mean for you personally and in your professional experience? And the question around assets-based, right? Like, what does that mean? Um, let's just start personally. I have learned other languages and I know that feeling of really, I am smart inside. I just can't get it out. Right? <laughs> that, that kind of like, I just don't have the words right now. Uh, and I think so many of our students are in that mode a lot, regardless of their stage of language development. And so if we continue to keep that mindset that yes, they can, they can think 
even if they can't express right now in the language of the classroom. So let's tap into all of their linguistic repertoire. Let's allow them to show what they can do, what they do know in lots of different ways. And Tan was hitting at this group of experienced multilinguals. So beyond the newcomer stages, so beyond that, like, I can do it. I just don't have the words yet. So once you get beyond that, what often happens is that these students are seen as somehow a deficit. In fact, the former label, we're hoping that label goes away, the long-term English label, that there's inherently something wrong with you because you're taking a long time. But it's it's a trajectory of language development. And so we're trying to get away from that and look really at this term experienced Look at all the experiences they're bringing in. They have been in an English-speaking school for at least five years. They have all of that school experience. They have all the experience in home and heritage cultures, the culture of their community, the culture of the school, the language of the school, the language of their home environment, their community environment. They have lots and lots of experience to draw on. So Tom's example about tapping in to what they already know at the start of a unit. So if that unit is on um, maybe building um, the Berlin Wall, which is one I often talk about as a former German teacher, uh, they may not know about the Berlin Wall, but they know about walls between countries. So can we connect to something they do know and then bring it into the current unit? One of the, um, and I'm going off, but what I often hear about experienced multilinguals when I'm working with um, school districts is they don't have background. So the negative, right? And I want to say, look, they have background. They have a lot of background knowledge, maybe just not in that unit that you're about to do. Can you connect to what they do know and bring it in? So that's that asset based, always looking at what do they have and let's connect it in. I know we're talking about literacy in here. One of my favorite kind of changes in perspective, I, I work pre-K to 12th grade and adult. And sometimes kindergarten teachers will come up to me and they see me coming in as the language person and they'll talk to me about a, an emergent bilingual student and say, she can't do Z, T, F, and G, right? And they just throw out these random letters that the student can't do whatever doing means. And I'm like, wow, they can do 22 letters. Let's build on those 22 that they can do and see how we can connect to that and build on, on their strengths. So that's that's like a practical example of how that applies to me personally. Like I can do a lot. I just don't have the language right now to all the way up to my work with students and teachers across the board, building on students' assets. Thank you, Beth. Um, and and Bree, I know, I mean, I work with you, so I know the asset-based model is your North Star. Everything you design, everything you, you you focus on has that kind of at the heart. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'd love I'd love for you to, sh to share um, your, your experience as well and what it means to you. Absolutely, Jose. I, I love this question. As you said, this is like at the heart of everything I do. It's my North Star. But I want to take it back a little bit more to even when I was a teacher and just really what this means to me. Because anytime I think about multilingual learners, I can't think of anything except for joy and excitement and all that they bring and have to offer. And, and I think back to those back to school times when you're waiting to see your class roster. And I was always that teacher who was like, fingers crossed, like, I hope I have all the emergent bilinguals in my class, because to me, they've always been the prize. I'm so, you know, we all know this, no group is a monolith. And, but over the years, my years in public education, 
they were consistently the group that was the most fun, diverse, joyful students and families that I've worked with. And there's always exceptions, right? But there are a lot of, and there are a lot of factors that influence this, but by and large, almost every multilingual student that I worked with from pre-K to adult was so committed and excited to learn English. And, and that's, not something that necessarily comes naturally for every learner, right? There's a lot of work with what, you know, Tan and Beth are talking about some of these strategies of how we as educators have to, what we have to do to make that happen. But these students have so much potential and they're, they're our future, right? We all know that ELLs are the fastest growing student population in, in American public schools. And right currently they're at like 10% and that that number is just projected to continue to increase. And if we think about the power and the role of language, right, we need that for everything we do. We need it to engage in the world. We realize that these students only come with bonuses if we think about it in that way. They have a bonus language. They've got rich cultural knowledge, diverse lived experiences, and they already come with all of that in the package of that heritage language. And we know that the English will come. So if we think about it in that way, we have students who are inherently brilliant because learning English is the act of becoming bilingual. And research shows us that a bilingual brain is an amazing one, right? There's enriched cognitive abilities, there's reasoning skills, multitasking, memory, increased creativity and flexibility. And so they possess this unique and coveted skill that really we would want for all of our monolingual students to strive to acquire to have one day too. So, you know, for this product, as you're talking about, Jose, that I've been working on for the last five years for Lexia English, it's an oral language um, development product. And there came up a time in the product's life cycle where we realized based on some of that deficit thinking that we were encountering in the field that we needed a new guiding principle to define the guidelines for all aspects of product development that focus on just this idea. Um, and so we committed to designing learning experiences that position learning English as an opportunity for bilingualism rather than a means of intervention. Because when we think about foreign language learning in this country, that's always viewed as an asset, right? We think of those schools that offer that as like a, a good educational program, and those are the gifted students. But somehow when we talk about emergent bilingual students, there's a stigma attached. And then we focus, if we can focus instead on the power of bilingualism, we can really embrace this idea that ELD is not an intervention, by and multilingualism is an asset, and we should actually strive for that goal for all of our students. So to me, that that's at the heart of it. Thank you, Bree. Thank you, everyone. Thank you for sharing your views on you know, this asset-based instruction for emergent bilinguals, which to me, in my opinion, it, it sets the foundation right for equitable learning experiences for all students to read, write, and, and speak with confidence. Um, now, because literacy in particular plays such a crucial role for future academic and career success, um, we as educators need to augment reading instruction as well to better address the needs of emergent bilingual learners. Um, but we must keep in mind that foundational reading skills, for example, don't facilitate reading comprehension if students' oral language proficiency is not developed to the level of the texts that they're expected to read. So with that in mind, why is it critical to explicitly and systematically teach both 
foundational reading skills and oral language development for our multilingual learners, bi bilingual learners, um, emergent bilinguals. Um, Bree, why, why don't we, we start with you? Sure, Jose. So I think to, to fully answer this question, we have to step back a bit, or I want to step back a bit and, and kind of understand what is and isn't unique about teaching multilingual learners how to read. So I'm, I'm going to start there, Jose. So we, we know that neuroscience tells us that the brain processes involved in learning to read is, are essentially the same in a, a second or additional language as they are in the first language. And so we probably already know this, but let's just review for, for a moment here. The process of learning to read requires connecting or binding the, the spelling system, the orthography to the phonology or the sounds of the language. And then we need to bring in the semantics and the meaning. So that process is the same, but what is different for a student who's learning to read in a language they're already proficient in is that they're only, and I say only in air quotes because I recognize that that's a big task in and of itself, but they are learning the process of, of connecting, making those connections, the oral language to the written language. And for an emergent bilingual, they're learning this mapping process of connecting the oral to the written, but at the same time that they're learning potentially a whole new sound system and they're learning the language of instruction. They're learning how to make meaning of this new language. So if we think about how early literacy skills are often taught um, in early ed, students are decoding and then encoding words like cat, dog, bat, right? So for a native English speaker, the work again is in that mapping process of the oral language or the sounds to the written language. But once that's done, they know what that word is. It has meaning for them. For a multilingual learner, they can we can teach them this mapping process. We can teach them to sound out words. They can decode that. But if they don't know the meaning of the word, it doesn't make sense. And if it doesn't make sense, it's not connected to meaning and then it's not going to stick. It just becomes rote memorization and they're not gonna be able to apply those skills. And of course, we know that learning to read needs to be a meaningful activity. So in order to get to the point where it can, when, where reading and writing are meaningful communicative activities, students have to develop certain skills. And that's that foundation piece. They need the decoding and phonics piece, but they also need the oral language piece. They need to build meaning through authentic, explicit instruction in speaking and listening. It can't be either or because they both have a role to play in the development of literacy. And I, I do want to be clear when we talk about oral language as a foundational skill, that means that it's a critical component to literacy, but it doesn't mean that we build it up and then we stop working on it or we stop developing it because it remains important throughout all of the time of English language development. That oral language piece, developing meaning and vocabulary and listening skills actually becomes even more important as students progress to more advanced reading levels and as they're working in other areas of literacy like comprehension. Think about an experienced multilingual student who's past that point of decoding they still need explicit vocabulary instruction to support comprehension. They need explicit grammar instruction, modeling, scaffolding in order to produce age appropriate sentence structures to engage in discourse about these increasingly complex texts. So to sum it all up for me, 
If you're teaching Emergent Bilinguals foundational skills, we want to be sure that they can understand the words we're using to teach the skills. If not, reading becomes an activity that is only based in memory and is not going to stick. And they also need that explicit and expansive ELD instruction so that they can develop the vocabulary, grammar, and discourse skills to comprehend the words they're reading um, in their literacy instruction and beyond. And, and we really need both for full comprehension. And as we know, comprehension is our end goal, right, with reading. So that's what I would say. Thank you, Bree. And and um, Beth, I don't know if you noticed, chat kind of lit up with kind of like what came comes first, the chicken or the egg type of a question. What do we focus on first? Uh, is it oral language development or, or the literacy, the foundational skills? Is it both? Um, can you tell us a little bit about that? It's both and. And I know that many um, schools and districts have gone to some kind of formal program, a systematic explicit phonics instruction program that builds the foundational skills. And many of them were designed with um, heritage language English speakers in mind. And so when I'm working with schools that have those programs, and I, I think there's a lot of really, really good ones out there, they're super explicit, like Brianna was saying, like they have to learn how to decode a word um, such as cat, right? They have to learn the sounds of the individual letters and how to blend them together. And we need support in how to build that. However, um, just like Brianna said, a, a home language English speaker, when they sound out at cat, they see a picture of a cat. They already have that. So what happens for a multilingual learner who is learning alongside the native English speaking peers, home language English, they are um, learning those same sounds and they're learning to decode and they, they should. And yet when they're starting to sound those things out and they get to b at bat, they don't may, maybe have a picture of a bat. Um, that flying animal in their head. So when is it that we build that? Often I recommend like a day one. So if your phonics program starts and, and you're building on that, can you add even 20 minutes ahead of time? So not connected necessarily. There's not necessarily a picture of a bat with the bat because then students might see a buh and say bird because they know bird, but not bat. So you don't want to mix that picture with the word for decoding practice, but if I have built that comprehension before they ever get to the word, then it seems like multilingual learners are now on the same page with their peers because I've built it. Now that can happen in your ELD block. That can happen for a whole class. That can happen in a lot of ways. But when they say like, which is first, you know, it's, can I look ahead at what my next lesson is and pick those keywords, phrases, concepts, ideas, can I do some kind of pre-teach around the oral language, the vocabulary, those sentence structures, so that when they read, I've got the comprehension. So when I decode, I am just on the same page as my peers. So those are some thoughts around that. And I'd love to see in the chat, it's coming um, coming up in the, in the chat and I haven't had a chance to read. So appreciate that. Thank you, Beth. That was, that was very helpful. Um, now, we know that, uh, how important explicit instruction is in both literacy and language development. I I'm wondering how educators can prioritize both language and literacy development. So, um, Beth, we'll, we'll continue with, with you. Can, can you give me some practical examples on how to integrate sound instructional strategies in the classroom, school, and or district when it comes to this? 
So if I understand your question, you're asking about like, how do we take this beyond one teacher's classroom? And I'm seeing in the chat, like we have to prioritize scheduling. We have to prioritize co-planning and talking to each other. We have to have everyone on board. And one of my go-tos when I'm working with schools is something called a lesson study. It comes to us from Japan. And as I said, most schools by this point have some kind of foundational reading program. It's their core reading program that makes sure that students are getting systematic phonics instruction. But then the question is, are our multilingual learners actually getting it? Are they comprehending? So we can set up a system where all the first grade teachers get together, we co-plan one really good lesson and maybe take these skills outside of that reading block or do it during uh, social studies or science lesson, or you can do it at any point. And we co-plan that. And then all those teachers, they need some kind of cover for one hour. They come in and observe students actually doing the work. And we might be scripting what they're saying. We might be um, noting who's answering, what questions are students asking. And we're really looking deeply at is this making a change for students? Are they are they getting it? What languages are they using to access the curriculum? What languages are they speaking when they're interacting with each other? <clears throat> How are students responding to teacher questions? Are they answering in complete sentences? All of those things you can chart because you've got a whole team of teachers in there. That then comes out, we look at the data, we make uh, instructional changes, and then move on to another grade level. If you're in secondary, that can be done as all the science teachers doing the same kind of thing. How are we making the lessons comprehensible? How are students accessing the text? I have to say, I just did this one with a seventh grade group, and it was all experienced multilinguals in the classroom. It was like 70% of the students have um, a different language at home, and they've been in the district since kindergarten. So now these students are seven years in, still classified as an English language learner. And when I helped co-plan the lesson, um, the teachers gave me the text the students were supposed to read, and their first response, and this is where somebody was asking, what's an asset-based, right? What's an asset-based approach? The teachers told me the students can't read this text. So that, that was their take. That's not asset-based. So I had to get down and I said, what do you mean by can't read? And I said, can they decode the words on the page? So first I had to, right, Brianna, make sure they had decoding skills. And we went through and they said, yes, they'll be able to sound out those words. I said, great. So what do you mean by can't read? Oh, they won't understand it. And then I said, okay, let's look at the first paragraph. What part of this won't they understand? And they all this idiomatic expression. And I said, okay, fair enough. I want to see what they do with it using the clues around it if they can decode. So we set up a partner reading protocol where students were reading with each other and discussing each paragraph with a protocol of asking a question, discussing it. And because it was a lesson study, <clears throat> I had seven colleagues in the room. Every one of them could sit with a partnership and actually script. What are the questions the students are asking? What are their answers? Are they understanding? Are they making meaning from the text? And when in the chat, when people were asking about asset base, look what happened. We came out and looked at the data. Every one of those teachers said, my kids can. 
They could ask a question about the text. They could figure it out. Not all of them figured out the correct meaning of the idiomatic expression, but they understood that this was an area that I wasn't quite sure of that now we can discuss as a whole class. So it was doing that kind of lesson study that now that whole seventh grade team has changed their perspective on what students can do, supports that they can put in place to support students with reading, right? So it was a lesson study that then went on to the eighth grade group right now in the whole middle school has this concept. So now we've gone from an individual teacher doing a strategy to a whole department or a whole grade level, and then it expands to the whole school. So that's one way. And it's just one strategy called a lesson study. It doesn't take a lot on the part. I know we have a lot of administrators in here. Um, it doesn't take a lot of coverage and you can usually do it in-house for the teachers to come in and observe one lesson that they have co-planned. So you need some kind of co-planning time, some kind of observation time, and then some, you know, half an hour of debriefing time. So it's a very possible structure to make change school-wide. I hope that's where you were going or what your thoughts were around that question of how do we expand it? A hundred percent. Thank you so much, Beth. We need can-do t-shirts, I think, may create <laughs> for us. Um, um, Alexia is asking, and I'll just address it right now. Are okay. there protocols in place? Yes. Um, our book, we have a protocol in the book for lesson study, but if you Google lesson study, it's been around for decades. It comes out of Japan and there is so much information. There are books written just on how to do a lesson study as well. So lots of information. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Beth. Um, Tom, can you add to that? I know you you have incredible um, instructional strategies that, that you use in, personally in your, your classroom and so on. We'd love to hear from you. Yes, thank you. Let me connect back to what Brianna said about oral language development. So let's go back to that ninth grade social studies um, social media unit that I'm currently in. After reading the article I've, um, and after teaching the words like advantages and disadvantages and access and like learning how to break down words of like advantageous, disadvantageous, taken advantage, right? And so students are learning these words. Then they get to the article and they're seeing advantages and disadvantages after annotating the article in the heritage languages. We're now playing with the ideas. Let me give you a few strategies. Write this down. I play with a strategy called ranking. I ask my students to rank which, which of the advantages is most advantageous. Ding, ding. Did you see how I connected the vocabulary to the prompt that I'm having students do? Now students are working together in small pairs to decide which is the most advantageous. I post it on, on because they're working on a live Google Doc. They're now discussing together. They're seeing one idea is different than another person's idea. And then my, my task for them is to say, okay, now you have to argue to get everyone else to, to believe in your idea, to believe in your number one ranking. So now students are arguing, they're debating, they're discussing. I've never seen this before, right? <laughs> and when then we do this the second day, because uh, the article is 1,600 words long. We did 800 words first with advantages. We did the second day disadvantages. And students are doing the same thing. They annotate. We look at disadvantages using like words like, what's the disadvantage of sleeping late at night for an athlete? Right? And so we play with those words. And then students read the word advantage, uh, disadvantages, the different disadvantages. And then we play a different strategy. Let me show you this. We show, um, no, we, we still go ranking because it's like, what is the most disadvantageous um, aspect of social media? And then they're debating, they're talking about it. And then the next day I do another game we call um, opposites. 
Okay, so we say find an an opposite of this, uh, uh, find an advantage of social media. Now find the opposite of it, and they go, well, social media is really great for connecting. However, it just makes you feel like sometimes really disconnected, like you're feeling left out. We list those things, and guess what? We taught them how to write a compound sentence of but. So, um, the, the, so my students go. One student wrote. Uh, social media can help you feel connected, comma, but it can also make you feel like you're being left out. So that all those things we did, like for um, learning how to read or reading, comprehending the text. Now students are playing with that, getting ideas out orally, but now I'm teaching them how to move from a social language to academic language. Right. And then I, and I showed them, now that you wrote the word comma, but as a compound sentence, let me show you another word. What if we took the word but and put it in the beginning? We can't do that. Let me show you the word however. So now I have students write their new sentence. They go, a social media uh, can connect people together. Full stop. Now add the word however. Now put a comma after the word however. However, it can also make you feel like you're being left out. Pero yo hace aquí como, I say, now tell me your, tell me how to say the word but in, in your language. Now, it's, is it the same word in, in Spanish? Is it the same word? Is it the same sentence structure? So students say the sentence structure in their heritage languages. They're saying in Khmer, they're saying in a Korean, and they say, oh, but can go in the middle, but, but, but can also go in the front. But you can't put the word but, you have to put the word however. Then we, went to Google Translate and we looked at the word however in Kamai and Lao in Korean and students were seeing that. Okay? And so this is what we're doing. We're really integrating everything. We're no longer saying, now that we've read, go do comprehension questions. Now that we've read, let's do a skit about it. It's playing with the ideas and then adding the complexity of academic language in it. Let me give you another example. So we were using the word, um, we were, I was teaching them something called uh, a white bus, you should look it up. It's conjunction. So it goes like a white W-I-T-E bus. And so students are learning the words after, uh, how, when, however, if, then, um, even though, right? So students are learning this separately. So we, we came to the word E, a part of white. So it's even though. So even though social media is, um, even though there are advantages of social media, comma, there are also disadvantages. And I asked them, ¿Cómo se dice even though in your, in your language? And they say, aunque. Or for my Vietnamese speaker, we say, uh, And so we're now integrating their, their languages together. And they're learning the target language, which is English, but they're reinforced by their, by their first languages. So that was a lot, but. Tan, I, I don't know if you get a chance to look over uh, chat. People are loving it, and and you're giving them um, some incredible ideas and great examples. You and Beth on instructional strategies. Now I'm going to set up one uh, last question, and then hopefully we'll have some time to dig into some of the questions we're getting in chat. Um, to set it up, the the science of reading helps to comprehend how students learn to read, right? But we need to consider the fact that emergent bilinguals are learning to read in a new language, which is what all of you have been sharing. So as we're creating and expanding this runway for literacy outcomes for all our students, especially our multilingual learners, what does the future hold for comprehensive science of reading-based instruction that's unique to our emergent bilinguals and multilingual learners? Um, Tan, we'll, we'll start with you. 
Oh, this is a <laughs> collaboration. Collaboration. Let me tell you, if we can get, you know, the phrase, every teacher is a teacher of language, but yet there's like a, like a dot, 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 like, how do we make that happen? And it, it's not my, my science teacher's job or my, or the music teacher's job to know that intrinsically. My job is to collaborate with them to say, oh, you want them to do a lab report? Okay, let's write down the parts of the introduction where you want them to, what does a scientist sound like when they write the introduction? What does a musician sound like when they're critiquing a song or analyzing the symbolism of a song? What are they doing first? Oh, they're identifying a symbol, they're explaining what it means, and they're going forward. And now when, when we collaborate this way, Teachers are actually putting me out of a job because yeah. then I no longer need to be in that class and I can be in someone else's class. I have an example. I was working with the just grade eight drama teachers and we were, we were showing how to like, can you write prompts? Please let's, let's create some prompts for your task instead of here's the task. They would start doing that. They use, they use boxes to write the prompts. And then about the end of the month of me just working with them, they said, We've been doing this with grade six and we're seeing results. And I don't work with grade six, but this is what it means when we combine our expertise as the, as the people who are like teachers of language acquisition, English language acquisition and development with teachers content, because I cannot teach drama, even though I'm dramatic, but I can teach how to write about what a character is doing in that play. And so that's what a combination collaboration. Thank you, Tan. Um, who wants to go next? Uh, this is a question for all of you. Oh, Beth, you're already off mute. <laughs> well, there's um, a lot in the chat about um, students in the secondary who don't yet have um, lang uh, literacy in any language yet. And what do we do about them? And so that kind of leads to my, what's what's the next, what's the future? is this simultaneous building of oracy, a word I really love because it's the oral version of literacy. So if literacy involves um, writing and reading, then oracy involves comprehension, so listening and speaking. And it's not an either or, it's not a first and then, it's together, both and. And I see that as a future that we're all starting to really embrace. And so for our students who are coming in um, to our secondary situations that um, have not yet developed literacy in their heritage or home languages, that's okay because we can build language orally and then transfer just like you would with kindergarten and first grade. They can learn the sounds systematically, just like Brianna was talking about before. And they can learn those sounds to start to decode and then they take off. And what's very interesting is cognitively, our seventh and eighth graders are in a much better place to learn those decoding skills. It actually goes much, much faster for our older students. And there are programs that are developed for older students to develop that kind of foundational phonics phonemic awareness skills, um, such as Wilson. There's a lot of other ones out there for adults even who it's respectful for the adults and they can learn those skills. So this both and oracy and literacy at the same time to support language development in all of the students' languages and using their languages as a support. The other little thing that I wanted to address because it came up in the chat about the future is that there's a lot around pronunciation 
And I, I would like just to give an indication that it takes a lot, a lot of repetitions of hearing the differences in sounds in order to ever make those. And sometimes students don't ever actually hear the sound. And if you have tried to learn a language with sounds that don't exist in your home language, then you know that this is the case. So um, Jose's um, first language was Spanish and I don't wear one anymore, but there is something that we used to wear the watch and in Spanish, of course, is a reloj. And there's a sound at the end of reloj that many people who don't speak Spanish don't actually hear um, because no English word ends with a sound. We have in our language, just not at the end of the word. So there was a lot about pronunciation, a lot about um refining. And I think a lot of that is just making sure students are first getting that phonemic awareness. Do they hear those sounds? It took me forever to hear the difference in Mandarin of the four tones. And my teacher would, um, because I, I could watch her lips and see it, but then just to hear it, I would close my eyes and I'd have to draw the tone. Is it this tone? Is it this tone? Is it this? And I have to show it with my finger. We don't have tones in English. So to hear those four tones was super challenging for me. And then to make them, I'm always going to make the wrong tone. Like it just, I can imitate, but I, I'm not really sure my voice is doing what they say. So this is a time and patience and working. Pronunciation comes way, way, way late and may never be whatever we consider. Per can you understand the person? That's the key. Can we understand them? So it's, it's enough phonemic awareness and manipulation that they can at least under, be understood. That helps with oracy, right? Because I can speak and then get more input. And then I can take that input for my reading and writing. So it's a both and. That's my future is that we stop trying to separate it out. It's both and. I love it. Thank you so much, Beth. Um, Brie, can you bring, can you bring, bring us home uh, with, with how, what you think the future holds? Sure. I, I mean, I, I'm so on board and aligned with what my colleagues here have shared. Beth, I love that you touched on the pronunciation piece because that's something we we talk about a lot, right? There, there is no one way to speak English. And that's something else that I hope will be embraced by folks in the in the years to come at, on a wider scale, right? That your English is beautiful. If you can communicate, your English is beautiful. That is where we want you to get. It, there might be a variance, but there is no one standardized way to speak English. And that that's, I, I'm with you there, Beth. <laughs> I also want to, my hope for the future revolves around an, an increased understanding and acceptance of sustaining the, the heritage language or the L1. Um, and I, it really, this is part of the, the the new research coming out of this science of, re, uh, science of reading um, conversations and, and understanding and research. But we know that building language and literacy in both languages leads to the best outcomes for emergent bilingual students. And so, you know, as, as Tan was speaking about that translanguaging piece, even if we're not in a, a true dual language or bilingual program, really everyone recognizing the importance of sustaining and building that 
L1 as much as possible, even if it's in the form of translanguaging and just using that full linguistic repertoire to, to help us learn. Um, and, and really, I hope my hopes for that is that in the future, there's increased opportunities for dual language education programs and increased emphasis on early childhood education to really harness that that power of early language training as well, which, you know, we know happens even in the womb. So I'm and I'm really glad that we are dedicating the time today to talk about the science of reading. But I also hope as a nation that we begin to take it a bit further and start discussing more like we've done today about the science of teaching reading. And so how the science of reading research informs practice. And I'm so glad that we've hit on that today. And I'm just hopeful for this common understanding by educators of the relationships between oral language and literacy development and how that informs teaching strategies that lead to the best um, outcomes for our multilingual learners. Thank you, Bree. Thank you, everyone. Um, I'm not sure how we're doing on time as far as getting into the audience questions. There's there's a bunch, and and luckily, um, uh, Beth has addressed several of them. Uh, can I ask one of one of the questions that stood out for me in chat? I'm, I'll I'll ask it, and then um, we just you know try to come up with some a short answer. Team, um, can you speak more to secondary newcomers? Uh, or, or like SLIFE students, right, who need to learn the foundational reading skills and engage in complex secondary context and, and, and texts, right? So these are secondary newcomers. Um, would one of you be willing to share thoughts? Han, you want to start? Sure. Uh, contextualize everything. Uh, please re look at Dr. Helen, Helen Marshall and Dr... Uh, I forgot her author, but Helena Marshall, she wrote a, a book about life. She's fantastic. She says, contextualize everything first. And as you contextualize everything, you add in the language. For example, let's say we're doing a unit on forces. We uh, have, we before we start talking about here are the different forces, we, we show kids a boat and we try to have kids sink the boat, right? And then so kids are playing with that. Right. Or it, it and this contextualizes things because let's say kids like we give them a task of like you have to get across the other side of the river. And many of our life students have never gone to school, but they have crossed a river every single day to go to the market. They need to know that if they force if they have too many people on that boat, it's going to sink. So we contextualize it for them. There's something they already know. Right. Yes, Helene Marshall and Andrew de Capua, fantastic. That's what I'm talking about. So I can only give you a snippet, but that's what they're saying. Contextualize it in something real for them and then slowly add, add, add. Not wait until they can get it, but add at every level. And I think that respect for what our students can do, just because they may have interrupted formal education, doesn't mean they can't learn grade level content with grade level peers. If you are contextualizing and making things super concrete and clear, they are absolutely capable. So an example of a um, student that came to me in eighth grade, had only lived and worked on a ranch in Mexico, had never been to school, did not know how to hold a pencil. This student knew how to take apart a motor and put it back together. And he had an amazing asset that we built on and, and it was just using that strength in any unit that I could to start start to build not only the English, but 
understanding of other parts of the world. So there's lots that we can build on. And he is absolutely, was absolutely capable of learning all the grade level content with that kind of contextualization. Now, maybe not reading Romeo and Juliet in the first year, but understanding the concepts of Romeo and Juliet, absolutely. Understanding a reduced text, for sure. Uh, So capable of participating in the class and the concepts, and then we have to modify some of the literacy for that. That's another way. It's been a, an amazing discussion. I'm just going to wait and watch the screen fill up with hearts and, and thumbs up emojis and hand claps. So that's what our family does. We celebrate this and we thank you so much, all of you, for your time. And we sincerely hope that everyone has enjoyed our week spent acknowledging and celebrating our multilingual students' superpowers. And we certainly invite you to continue these conversations with us. So Lexia's goal is to help make sure every student can read, write, and speak with confidence. And we are here to help you realize that goal for your students. So hopefully, if you have not already, you have had an opportunity to visit our prima, our cousin Denise Soler Cox, powerful documentary, Being Inye. We have it there on the screen. We used to have a chance to view it complimentary for being a part of our Emergent Bilingual Week. You don't want to miss it. Make sure that you get a chance to watch that video. For all of the family that are joining us here today, yes, why don't you get that QR code and you can receive a special offer off of the book. Right now, our co-authors are giving you a 25% discount. So yes, go ahead and use your phones, get that QR code and get your own 25% off the long-term success for experienced multilinguals book by our amazing authors that you had a chance to hear from today, Ton and Beth. And we thank them also for this amazing offer. Again, I am cousin Cassandra Wheeler, director of Lexia Letter State Success. It has been my pleasure to be your host and event moderator this week for Emergent Bilingual Week, our fourth annual Emergent Bilingual Week. And on behalf of all of us here at Lexia, all of us send a hearty thank you to Jose, Anton, Beth, and Brianna, and to all of our amazing presenters that we've had a chance to experience this week, as well as the discussion leaders, and to all of you, our Emergent Bilingual Week family. We just say thank you so much for joining us. We thank you for being here with us. We have had a blast. And with that, I say good afternoon, good evening, good night, or good morning. Thank you for being here. We love you. Goodbye. And see you. Take care. Thanks, everybody. We hope you enjoyed this EdWeb podcast. If you'd like to receive a CE certificate, you must watch the video recording. Recordings and quizzes can be found in the EdWebinar archives. Please visit home.edweb.net slash podcasts for more information.